this morning we are continuing our study through the pastoral letters. In fact, we're going to finish up Paul's first letter to Timothy this morning. Um, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to address some significant problems that were in the church. There were people, some of whom even were leaders, who were teaching strange doctrines in the church. And Paul sent, Paul knew this, uh, that this would destroy the church, so he sent Timothy to address these issues. So this letter was meant to give guidance, uh, to give encouragement as Timothy addressed the guilty parties and tries to, to help the church honor the Lord. And since Paul writes so much about the church in this letter, it has very important truth about what the church is and what the church does. Uh, for example, in chapter 3, he describes the church in three ways. He says the church is first the household of God. Then he says the church is it's the church of the living God. Then he says the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. So when we think about all those three things, it tells us the church is the family of believers who have God as their father. The church is the gathered assembly in the very presence of the living God. And we also see that truth is entrusted to the church. The church is to uphold it, to defend it, to preserve it, to apply it. That's why it's so vital that those who were teaching those strange doctrines in the church be stopped from doing that. Instead, there need to be a focus on sound doctrine, a focus on the Christ-centered gospel. So in this letter, Paul has given a number of things that guide the local church and how it's to function. There's, a, there's supposed to be an emphasis on prayer. There needs to be attention given to the church choosing biblically qualified men to serve as elders and as deacons. There needs to be a focus on both reading and expounding of the scriptures in the worship service. The pastor, elders of the church, need to be men who not only understand and teach sound doctrine, but that their life also must be consistent with their teaching. So, as we close out this first letter to Timothy, we see Paul continuing to talk about the need to give instruction to the church and the need to guard that sound biblical gospel doctrine. So let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 21. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding the worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So there's two main sections in this closing paragraph. Both are dealing with stewardship from different angles. In verses 17 to 19, Paul addresses believers who have been blessed with material riches and gives them guidance on how to honor God with their possessions. In verses 20 to 21, Paul gives one final charge to Timothy in light of the great spiritual riches that he's been blessed with. So our first main point is this. Those who have been blessed with many material resources must be careful regarding temptation but also use what God has given to honor him and serve others. 
In verse 17, we see that Paul is addressing those who are rich in this present world. Now, just to remind you, just a few verses earlier, he spoke of men of depraved mind, he called them, who considered religion as a way to make money. He warned against those who wanted to get rich. He said the love of money was a root of all sorts of evil. He also said that there were some apparently within the church at Ephesus who had followed so strong after the love of money that they had fallen away from their faith. So these were very important warnings, and people can be so committed to money and to material things that it becomes an idol in their life and ends up causing them to reject the Christian faith altogether. But these verses have a different tone. There is still a warning about the danger that can be there as far as riches are concerned. But here Paul is speaking to people who were true Christians, but were also blessed with many material possessions. So he tells Timothy to give some instruction to people who were in this situation. And before we look at these verses, I think it's probably good to ask a simple question. What does it take to be considered rich? Um, as we've noted, a large percentage of the members of the Ephesian church were probably slaves. So they probably would not be in the category of being rich, but there were others who were. Do you consider yourself rich? Most of us probably don't. I mean, we think of rich people with huge houses, usually several of them. Rich people have so much money they don't even need to work. Rich people are probably either millionaires or pretty close to it. So are you rich? Based on that kind of description, most of us probably aren't. But if we compare ourselves with the financial situations of most of the people in the world, we are probably all in the category of being rich. We have a comfortable place to live, one or two cars, money in the bank, ability to pay our bills, at least most of them, <laughs> quite a few changes of clothes, plenty of food to eat, toys for the kids to play with, opportunities for education, multiple computers or smartphones. Most of us have been blessed with many material resources. Obviously, other people have more than we would have, but I would think that most of us have enough that we would be considered rich on some scale. Therefore, I believe that everything we're going to talk about this morning applies to probably most everybody here today. Most of us are rich in this present world, as Paul describes it. Now, the first instructions that Paul gives are in the category of warnings. First is this. Do not allow ample provision to cause you to feel puffed up and self-sufficient. Puffed up and self-sufficient. Verse 17 begins by saying, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. The word for conceited speaks of being high-minded or proud. The first application that's usually uh, pointed out in commentaries, and for good reason, is the, tempt is the temptation to think you are better than other people because you have more money, you have more stuff, or maybe you have better stuff than they have. And that's definitely a temptation. I mean, it's easy to look down on people who are not as well off as we may be. Some personal confession here. I admit that when I see people holding up signs asking for money, I wonder what caused them to be in that situation. 
Um, maybe it wasn't their fault at all. Uh, maybe it was just hard circumstances that are beyond their control, but I have to admit, I don't always give people the benefit of the doubt, and part of that is because over the years, um, just being in a church, you have people come often asking for money, phone calls, uh, people who just drop by, you know, and uh, asking for money, you know, for all kinds of, in all kinds of circumstances. And you don't have to talk to them for very long to realize that a good percentage of them are not really telling you the truth about what's really going on. I have caught people in lies over and over and over again when they've talked about how they need this and what this situation is and so forth. So I admit I have a tendency to make judgments <laughs> when, I, when I see those kind of things, which is a problem I have to deal with. But there's another application of being conceited because of riches that comes to mind for me, and this is another one that applies to me. It's taking for granted that there's always going to be enough. There's always going to be enough food. There's always going to be enough money to pay the bills. It's taking for granted that the house will never be taken away from you. It's taking for granted that even if a car breaks down or an appliance breaks down, you'll always be able to get another one. I mean, I try to really consciously give thanks to God for the things that we have, the things that I have, the things that I've been given. And I think this is probably the most effective ways to fight this kind of conceit, to think that I deserve, you deserve this kind of stuff. But it's still a temptation to feel self-sufficient. I mean, there's a temptation to think that, I hate to say this, but I know it's in the back of my mind, it's a temptation to think that even if God didn't provide, I could probably figure something out. I could, there's probably, you know, I don't know, and a lot of that's to some extent because he's always has provided. So there's a tendency here, I think, that's an aspect of this being puffed upness, this, this conceit, a temptation to take things for granted as if we deserved it. So God warns us, don't let the ample material possessions, provision that he's been given us over the years to cause us to feel puffed up or to feel self-sufficient. Next, we're warned this way. Resist the temptation to fix your hope on material things that are so uncertain, that are so uncertain. Verse 17, Paul says, Warn those who are rich in this present world to not fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So the tendency for those who've been blessed with many material possessions is to rest the weight of our confidence on those things. We live day to day assuming that the place we live in will always be there. We assume that our vehicles will work, and if not, we can get them easily repaired. We assume that the refrigerator and the cabinets are always going to be well stocked with food. We assume that we're going to have electricity, we're going to have indoor plumbing, we're going to have heat in the winter and cooling in the summer. We know those things can break down, but generally speaking, we build much of our everyday lives around believing that that's, that that's going to be there for us. We assume that our insurance, our health benefits are going to be sufficient. We trust the money we have in the bank accounts is going to be safe. We assume that Social Security and retirement accounts are always going to be solvent. None of those things are bad. Those are wonderful provisions from God. 
wonderful blessings, but they're also uncertain. Money and the material possessions that we have are not bulletproof. Things can happen that show us that they're not permanent. Things can be destroyed by storms or by fire. Things can be stolen. Bad investments, bad management of investments can cause major problems. And this is not meant to cause us to worry or to be anxious, but it's meant to cause us to be realistic. It's meant to reinforce the lessons that Paul gave earlier in this chapter about the importance of contentment. There's another place where Paul talked even more about contentment that I want to read to you. This is Philippians 4, 10 to 13. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last, speaking to the Philippian church, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A couple things that we said here, there's so much that's in those, in those verses. A couple things. Contentment does not come naturally to anybody. Paul said he learned it. The Apostle Paul had to learn to be content. How could he do that? Well, you probably noticed a verse at the end that we quote all kinds of, in many ways, and all kinds of things out of context. The context for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is you can be content. You can be content because God will enable you to be content, whatever the situation may be. Well, that leads us to the next point. You and I need to honor the Lord by trusting him to provide for our needs and also by enjoying what he gives. It's easy to get morbid here in our thinking of the uncertainty of riches. It's easy to turn that truth into a source of constant worry, but that's not the issue here. That's not the answer. Instead, Paul tells every believer who's been blessed with many material resources to fix their hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. There is no uncertainty with God. None. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is God our provider. That's a fundamental aspect of who he is, especially for Christians. And that Jehovah Jireh is not just a neat thing to say or a neat thing to sing in a song. It's real. It's really true that God actually is our provider. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said if he provides for the birds, surely he's going to provide for his children. If he clothes lilies on the field, many of which are going to live and die, nobody's ever going to see it. If he clothes lilies on the field in such beautiful ways, he's going to take care of his disciples. Of course he will. We can trust in God's providential care. 
I'm going to read some of Stephen Charnock's quotes here about this in his, from his book called Divine Providence. And just to help reinforce the idea that God does richly provide. A couple things here. He says, God's people, the church, are foremost on his mind. He loves them and all his designs are for their good. The Lord has given his covenant people his whole heart, infinitely, entirely, and forever without hesitation. And he orders his gracious providence for their salvation and for their preservation. He also says, the world is sustained and continues for the sake of the church. He says, God orders the course of natural things for the good of the church and its members. He says, the interest of nations, all civil affairs, and the course of all things are ordered for the good of the church. In other words, we have every reason to fix our hope on God. Every reason. I'm thankful that my bank account is insured by the U.S. government. That's good news. But we still fix our hope on the one true and living God. He uses all kinds of things to provide for us. He uses other people. He uses our employer. He uses our family. He uses our friends. He uses banking institutions. He uses investment firms. But ultimately, we must always remember that it is God who is actually doing the providing. In fact, Paul says here, he richly supplies. We're told back in verse 8, if you look back, if you look back up a few verses, we're told in verse 8 that we should be content with food and covering. But our God almost always provides way more than that. He is good. He is wise. He is all-powerful. He is our God, and we can trust him to richly supply us with all things. We're also reminded that we should enjoy what he provides. Don't partake of God's provision with murmuring and complaints. Actively thank him. Consciously enjoy what he has given. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We're supposed to enjoy what he has provided. And that's an important part of being a good steward of what he provides us. Enjoy it. Then Paul gives further instruction to those who have been blessed with material resources. He says, use what God has given to generously help others. Verse 18, he says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share. So here the focus on material possessions transitions to another kind of riches. Those believers who are rich materially are instead to focus on being rich in good works. This is a natural part, really, of any Christian's life. God has changed our heart so that we want to live our lives focused on loving him out of a love for him, and out of a love for other people. I mean, Paul makes this a key part of his description of a person who has been saved by grace. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created 
in Christ Jesus, that reminds us every Christian has been born again in Christ Jesus. So we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. We're saved by grace, not by works. But all who have been saved by grace will show the fruit of their salvation in the way they live their life. It'll be evident. Every believer is going to abound in good works. They're going to be evident in every sphere of their life. So here in 1 Timothy, Paul says, don't focus primarily on your material wealth. Focus on being rich in good works. And then he adds that because you already have material assets, be generous. Be ready to share. So those who are rich have opportunities for certain kinds of good work that others don't have. They can be generous in helping people in need. They can share out of what God has given them as a way to honor the Lord, as a way to help others. In fact, Paul says, be ready to share. We want to help, not in foolish ways. You can help people in ways that are not really smart. But to be truly help, we need to be ready to want to do that. And then Paul adds one more thing for those who are rich in this present world. Verse 19. He talks about them storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So our next point is this. As God gives the desire and ability to be rich in good works, he also gives enduring treasure for heaven. Enduring treasure for heaven. Paul has made it clear that the riches, the material blessings that we have in this life are uncertain. They're transitory. But there is a treasure of riches that will last into and all the way through eternity. The things that we do on earth have a lasting effect on our eternity. These good works that Paul is encouraging will result in a good foundation, he says, for the future. They are a well-grounded basis of hope. Now, Jesus said the same thing, different words. Back in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 20, Jesus says, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then Jesus said this to the rich young ruler who was asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. He said this, one thing you still lack, sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, the first thing is we think about this, what Jesus said, and as well as what Paul says here, we need to be clear about what is not being said. Neither Paul nor Jesus are saying that you can buy salvation by your good works or by your generosity to other people. Paul is emphasizing that there's a contrast between earthly wealth and true eternal wealth. There's a contrast. There's a distinct difference. And one of the biggest emphases of Paul's writings, and we're going to see it at the very end of this letter as well, is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But when God in his sovereign grace brings a person to salvation, he changes their heart. He changes their life. There are new creations in Christ. And that's going to be evident. That's going to show itself 
in good works. So the good works are not to earn salvation. Instead, they are evidence of a salvation that has already been obtained. Look at this quote by Patrick Fairbairn. He says, The grace which brings salvation as a divine gift becomes from its very nature to those who receive it their great talent, wherewith they must do service to God, and hereafter be dealt with according as they themselves have done. The good works are evidence that the person has been saved. They are the good fruit that comes from a person who's trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Patrick Fairborn says, God grants that grace and then enables us to use that grace to do good works and then we're rewarded for those works that he initiated and caused to take place. <laughs> That's grace. That's grace. And this is where the true lasting treasure is. This is true life. It's a life that's lived for the glory and pleasure of God, not a life that's focused on material possessions. So if we're going to be good stewards of what God has given us, we need to understand these basic truths. Well, then in, the, in this closing charge then to Timothy, Paul focuses on another aspect of being a good steward of what's been entrusted to us. So our second main point is this. Those who have had the wealth of sound biblical gospel doctrine entrusted to them have a great responsibility before God. Verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Timothy probably had not been entrusted with a great deal of material wealth. He had what he needed, for sure, and Paul had exhorted the church in chapter 5 that the laborer was worthy of his wages. But Timothy had been entrusted with something greater than material riches. Literally, Timothy is told to guard the deposit the deposit is understood to be the sound biblical gospel doctrine that Paul had entrusted to him. Paul was an apostle. So the things that he wrote, the things that he taught, was the deposit of true Christian doctrine that he was given by the Lord to teach. Timothy was well aware of what sound doctrine was. This whole letter has been written to encourage him to hold firm to that sound doctrine as he addressed a church that was compromising the faith. None of us have been taught personally by an apostle. But we have the word of God available to us. We are able to read it, study it, memorize it, hear it taught, continue to grow in our understanding of that biblical gospel. So we too have the obligation to guard what's been entrusted to us, to keep the truth intact. So from these last two verses, we see first this. Sound biblical doctrine is often under attack. Therefore, it must be guarded. It must be guarded carefully. Timothy received the apostolic deposit directly from an apostle. Who has God used in your life to entrust sound doctrine to you? I'm going to give you some people who have invested in my life over the years. 
My parents were both dedicated Christians. They were committed to the local church, and they truly did seek to honor the Lord with their lives. So I'm so grateful for being raised in a Christian home. The church I grew up in was quite traditional. I was able to hear basic Bible stories. I learned many of the old hymns there. I went to a Baptist college, and I was given many opportunities to be involved in Christian ministry. I learned a lot from doing that pastor I had in in Titusville was named Peter Lord. I learned so much from him as far as his genuine love for the Lord. He had a real emphasis on prayer, on humility, very practical ways of uh, helping someone understand how to serve the Lord. Jerry White was another minister at that church. It was from him that I first heard what is sometimes called the doctrines of grace, and it gave me a much more thorough understanding of the scriptures So many of the things I understand go back to that little class I was in with several other guys with Jerry White. I had many seminary professors who helped me a great deal in issues of doctrine, ministry, church history. I've been helped by many Christian authors over the years, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Benjamin Keach, John Bunyan, R.C. Sproul, Tom Askell, Charles Spurgeon. There's a long list. Who has God used in your life to entrust sound doctrine to you? You've got a list. Thank the Lord, you've got a list. Be grateful for what he's taught you. And be careful to guard the things that are biblically sound and accurate. Because not everything we hear, not everything we read is in the category of sound biblical gospel doctrine. There are some things we have to reject, not because we don't like it, not because it doesn't fit with how we want to live our life, not because it isn't popular. We reject it because it's not truly biblical. As Paul told Timothy, he was to avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Of course, he had specific things in mind that, that he has been warning Timothy about in this letter. But as I was thinking about this description, worldly, empty chatter, things that are falsely called knowledge, my first thought, that's a good description of social media. And I bet a lot of you probably thought the same thing. That's a good description of much of what we hear or see on TV, YouTube, the Internet, In other words, there are worldly arguments all around us, so we have to be on guard. You can't insulate yourself from everything, and I don't think that's even a good idea because there's good things there too. But we have to be on guard. That's what he was telling Timothy to do, be on guard. Guard this. And actually, I believe these kind of false teachings are more accessible to us than they were to Timothy. We have to recognize that not everyone who refers to Jesus or quotes a Bible verse is someone who's putting forth sound doctrine. Not everything that gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling is true to the biblical gospel. Another quote from Patrick Fairborn, he says, The errors to be guarded against are the teachings of man. The safeguard against them is what is received by faith from the teachings of God. 
So we thank the Lord for the wealth of sound biblical gospel doctrine that's been entrusted to us. And we have an important job. We have an important job to guard it very carefully, to be good stewards of what we've received. Now, to further emphasize what a sobering responsibility this is, we read this in verse 21. He talks about these things, these uh, things to be careful of, and he says, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. So from this, we see our next point. When a person denies the biblical gospel, they are in great danger because they're following the path of error that leads to destruction. This is why it was so vital for Paul to send Timothy to Ephesus. The gospel was being compromised. Philosophies of man were being put in place of teachings of Scripture. Sound doctrine was being attacked. And when a person or a group begins to misrepresent the gospel, they have gone astray from the faith, and they are leading others to do the same thing. This is happening all over our nation. People are taking popular ideas from the culture and acting as if these things are compatible with biblical truth, and it's a very, very dangerous place to be. Paul spoke about the great danger of being sucked into erroneous teachings. He's doing it here, but it was also a big problem in the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 1, verses uh, 6 through 9. Our Wednesday night Bible study was talking about this um, uh, this past Wednesday as well. Uh, this is a really strong warning here. Here's what Paul says, verses 6 through 9 of Galatians 1. And the fact that this is so early in the letter, he's just getting right to it because this is on his heart. And he was like, this is a big deal, guys. Pay attention to this. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. So Paul warns about so-called Christian teachings that actually were distortions of the gospel. These were teachings that were varying from the apostolic deposit that he was talking about here to Timothy. And he pronounces a curse, a curse on all who teach a gospel that is different from the one that he taught under the inspiration of the Spirit. They are accursed. That word for accursed is anathema. Some of your versions may actually just use that actual word, anathema. One of my Greek seminary professors, uh, Dr. McGorman, I still remember his comment, and I've written it down. I've written it in my Bible. He said, anathema means this, to be devoted to God's glory by being utterly destroyed. <laughs> he says, it's the epitome of all evil. The destruction of this evil rings out God's glory. That's anathema. Timothy had the responsibility to guard what was entrusted to him. As believers, we have the same responsibility. 
Paul ends his letter with this blessing, grace to you. This reminds us finally that it's by God's grace that one is not only brought to trust in Christ for salvation, but also to continue in saving faith to the end. Continue to the end. This serves, of course, as the closing to the letter. It's kind of like us saying yours truly or uh, sincerely, something like that, and we, before we sign our name. But this is not just a token or traditional closing. These words are full of gospel truth, just like the rest of the letter is. It's also interesting to note here that the word you, when he says grace be with you, that word is plural. In other words, these words are not meant only for Timothy. They were meant for Timothy and all the faithful believers with him. Grace is a reminder that every Christian is saved by God's grace, not by our good works. Grace reminds us that we are all sinners, but God has graciously provided salvation for us in Christ. Grace reminds us that God actually showed us that we were sinners, so we'd be aware of that. Grace reminds us that it is the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts and enables us to put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Grace also reminds us that God grants his favor to every believer to see us through every day of our life in every circumstance that we come in contact with in our life. It's by God's grace that Timothy was going to be enabled to carry out the difficult task that Paul had given to him. It's by God's grace that the other believers in the Ephesian church were going to be able to withstand the false teachings that they were being faced with. And it's by God's grace that every one of us are also enabled to stand firm for the gospel, to be rich in good works, all to the glory of God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that are there, the, things that, the ways that we are encouraged and helped. Uh, some really practical teaching here as we think about just the wonderful material blessings that you've given to us, so many things that we could list that you've, that you've blessed us with. We thank you for that. We thank you for the, the lessons that are here for us and also to point us to the fact that you are the one that we should rejoice in more uh, over, uh, first and foremost as far as our provider, the one who takes care of us. Thank you so much for the focus that you give to your children. Thank you for your help and for your provision. I thank you, too, for the way you've given to us the truths of the scriptures. Thank you that we have these things. Thank you that we've had people in our lives who have taught us these things. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to guard carefully the things that we know to be true and to live them out in our lives regularly. Lord, we thank you for your work in our lives. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then that closing comment, grace to you, is something you need to hear as far as your salvation is concerned. A prayer like this would be a way to, to approach that concern for salvation. Lord, I realize that I have sinned, that I am not what I should be in so many ways. But I thank you that you and your grace provided Jesus Christ as the Savior, and I want to receive him as my Savior. I commit my life to him as a Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can 
reach out to us through the website. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and it's in Christ's name we pray.